Good morning, beloved. This is Interim Pastor Mike Sherritt, a pre-recorded sermon for Wallace Presbyterian Church, Sunday, March 22nd. Our scripture text is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are all in a state of alert. We're being cautious about the coronavirus. To use Peter's words in verse 13, we're preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. And indeed, we should, in the face of any known danger, we take precautions. We want to preserve our health, enjoy our lives. So former habits, such as what you touch, where you go, may need altering. I'm sure you've done that. I've done that. When you are diligent to preserve the health of your soul, to replenish it with what is nourishing it, and to repel anything harmful to it, you're seeking holiness. Let me say that again. When you're diligent to preserve the health of your soul, your heart, your spiritual being, by replenishing your soul with whatever nourishes it and repel anything that harms it, you're seeking holiness. Holiness, reverence for God moral purity, righteousness in relationships. Well, this text is a sort of mini treatise on holiness. You can see from the outline in the bulletin, I'm gonna use this definition as we move through the outline for holiness. It's the practice of safeguarding and promoting the health of your soul so that you share in the beauty of God's holiness and thus reflect back to God the glory of that holiness. Notice the fundamental call at the heart of the text, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's the entirety of your life. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, as we get to the outline, let me take a minute just to be clear on the definition of holiness, particularly God's holiness. God's holiness is what makes God utterly distinct and different from his creatures. Remember back when we looked at being a saint, being set apart or holy one? Well, God is the ultimate one who is set apart from his creation. He's unapproachable. He has no rivals, no equals. 
It's the one attribute of God that is thrice descriptive of him. The well-known passage from Isaiah 6 captures this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All that God is, is holy. Holiness characterizes, as it were, all of God's attributes. God's love is a holy love. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. God's mercy is a holy mercy. God's knowledge is a holy knowledge. God's holiness reveals to us that he is infinite in power, perfect in purity and righteousness. And properly understood or comprehended, what response ought that to prompt in us? Well, how about this? Who is like you, O Lord? You are incomparable. Think of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or Psalm 86, 8 to 10. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. You alone are holy. That's why everything should bow before the Lord and worship him. So do you see how God's holiness demands that we get our focus off ourselves and onto him? And when that happens, invariably, inevitably, we see our sin. And so we respond to God in his glory with worship and imitation because he deserves both our worship and our imitation. I'm going to return to this passage, these uh, Old Testament quotations about being holy for God is holy, a little bit later in the sermon. Let's now start and work through our three points on holiness. Very simple points. Peter is going to show you regarding holiness when, verse 13, how, verses 14 to 16, and why, verses 17 to 21. So let's take the first point. Holiness, when, now, <laughs> what could be more important? Do you sense Peter's urgency? Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. That word prepare in the original language is the word for girding up. It was used of in the ancient times when men girded up their long robes so they could move unhindered, so they could run, so they could work, so they could move about. Gird up, get ready to move. Peter may be echoing Jesus' own words, calling us for readiness for a second coming, Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action. There's that verb. Gird up your loins for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that 
they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. It's the, the idea of looking back at the, uh, at the exit of, is, of Israel in Exodus 12, 11. How was Israel to eat the Passover meal with their loins girded up and ready to move at a moment's notice? Well, in the same way, people are serious about safeguarding their health. Uh, for example, I was standing in line at Chipotle the other day, and the man in front of me was coughing, and he wasn't covering his mouth. So I immediately moved away from him. In the same way people are serious about safeguarding their physical health, followers of Jesus are serious about safeguarding their hearts. Safeguarding your heart from sin and for the dwelling place of God. Holiness. It's a good thing. It's a desirable thing. It's a beneficial thing. It is a blessing. It is a necessity. It is the root of happiness. <laughs> when should you move toward what is good for you and away from what is bad for you? Now. <laughs> Peter may be anticipating folks who think like this. Oh, Mike, chill. It doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. Let's not be so intense about all this holiness stuff. But... The giver of grace is so beautiful, so desirable. Who, having received that grace, wouldn't want more of the giver? Peter may be thinking of the person who thinks this way. I'll get serious about pursuing God later. Tends to play younger people. I've got life to live. I've got things I want to do. I'll get serious later about pursuing God. And I would ask you, why? You have something better? What's more important? or more desirable than God himself. People who know God invariably say, nothing I desire compares with you. People who say, I'll get serious about God later, well, that's the way people think who don't know God and who have no expectation of a glorious future. See, right now shapes forever. That's why in verse 13, you see that holiness, in a sense, being like God, has a goal. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our lives are going somewhere, the presence of Jesus in paradise. This is the Christian hope, our confident assurance of seeing and relishing God in Christ. In the presence of Christ, experiencing radiant love, beauty, purity, splendor, majesty, Christ's holiness. <laughs> When Jesus returns to the earth, he will be ridding it of sin, death, corruption, evil, making it holy. So he'll relish his people as his precious possession. Well, you know from the Bible that this return commences with a celebration, a party. Revelation calls it the wedding, supper of the Lamb. And as far as we're concerned, the wedding feast starts when? Tonight. So when should you get ready for it? Now. What, incidentally, is the grace, Peter says, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, that grace is probably multifaceted. It is the vindication of your salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. We are indeed God's sons and daughters. We're clothed in the beauty of Christ's righteousness. We're new creations, but it doesn't quite appear that way for, to our human eyes. When Christ comes and we are united to Jesus, transforms instantly in the presence of Jesus, all will be clear that we are his precious possession, saved, beautiful in Jesus Christ. That grace to be brought to you also will be your resurrection body. 
that indestructible body you'll have, like Christ's forever. That grace to be brought to you will be unbridled sight of God in Jesus Christ. God will be near and we will not be consumed by his holiness. That grace to be brought to you will be instantaneous liberation from death, sin, sickness, sadness, sorrow. What grace! Never to face those things ever again. And that grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ must be the joy of Jesus, seeing in you the reflection of his lovely character, seeing in you perfected his own humility, gentleness, love, compassion, self-sacrifice, zeal, righteousness, and other-centeredness. So like a bride adorning herself for her wedding day, that calls for preparation. When? Now! That's our first point. Holiness? When? Now. Secondly, Peter gets very specific about this pursuit of holiness. And again, our definition, the practice of safeguarding and promoting the health of your soul so that you share in the beauty of God's holiness and thus reflect back to him the glory of his holiness. I'm going to tease out three things the passage says about how we're to be pursuing holiness. First, know who you are. Verse 14, as obedient children. Holiness is being who you are. It's acting like the child of God you are, being adopted by grace, by the gospel, into the family of God. And what could bring our Heavenly Father more delight than his children obeying him? See, because you are seeing and enjoying the beauty of the heart of God, you want to imitate the family likeness. You want to live consistently with your truest identity. This is, this is what people in sports do. When, when I want to improve my golf swing, they'll say, well, look at and examine closely the swing of somebody who does it really well and imitate it. Who does holiness better than Jesus himself? Notice how verse 13 begins, therefore. Now this word's important because it marks a mood change in the verbs in 1 Peter chapter 1 from the indicative to the imperative. Let me explain. Verbs in the indicative are simply telling you what is. They are indicating the facts about what God has done for you in Christ and who you are because you belong to Christ. That's the indicative. In the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, we get the facts. We get all indicative. What are some of those facts? What is the indicative? What has God done for you? Well, if you've experienced God's grace in Christ, it means he has chosen you. He's caused you to be born again. He's cleansed your guilty conscience with his blood, and he's given you a living hope, protecting you for his glorious presence forever through faith. All the indicative in verses 1 to 12. At verse 13, we get the first commands of the epistle, what we call the imperative. This is what you're supposed to do. Now, that tells you something very important about Christianity. Christian ethics is grounded upon the indicative. You could simplistically sum up all of Christian ethics this way. This is who you are in Christ. Be who you are. See, we're not trying to be good so God will accept us. He accepts you based on Christ's goodness in order to make you good. All the other religions 
are a bargain with God. I do my part, and God, you owe me heaven. All the other religions you could think of as advice. Do this, and God will accept you. Christianity is an announcement. God has done this for helpless sinners through Jesus, so respond by acting accordingly. Second thing Peter tells us how to pursue holiness. Put off. He says, put off the lust of your former life. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I'm going to couple that with verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter is saying, stop and think about life before Christ. What words describe it? Well, they're pretty graphic. Verse 18, feudal. That means it lacks reality. It's going nowhere. It'd be the same as fighting an enemy tank with a squirt gun. Feudal. Verse 18, he says, it is inherited from your forefathers. We tend to act the way our family of origins model for us. And this tells us probably he's has largely in mind the Gentile audience of in these churches in the region to which he's writing. Their forefathers were Gentiles. And what marked that, according to verse 14, was ignorance. They didn't know what they didn't know. They were ignorant of God, God's ways, God's word, God's law, God's glory. And when you're ignorant of all of those things, man, does it show up in the way you live. And he uses this word in verse 14, passions of your former ignorance. This is an important word in the Greek language. It's a compound word, epithemia. The Greek word for desire is thumia. When you put a little prefix in front of it, epi, the word epi simply functions to intensify the word that follows it. So epithumia equals strong desires, inordinate desires, over desires, making a good thing into the ultimate thing. And the kinds of things we tend to do that with, generally speaking, idols, are things like power, pleasure, possessions, position, prowess, prestige, prominence. We could say a lot about these kinds of idols. All of these in and of themselves are fine, but when you make that the thing where you are finding your worth and significance above God, then they become passions. They control you. And Peter says in verse 14, don't be conformed to those. The word conformed referred to keeping something in a mold. He's saying, don't let your character be molded by the hands of your former days when you were ignorant in God. See, when you know there's a greater danger lurking inside of you, sin, sin is a virus of the soul and an infection of the mind, a pollution of the heart. You don't want to be conformed to what that did to your life, your thinking, your relationships, your emotions, your goals, your dreams, your values, your vision, your virtues. One way to put it would be this way. What do you love? Augustine, the great church father, said there can only be two basic loves, the love of God unto forgetfulness of self, the love of self unto forgetfulness of God. So think about it. Is God forgotten in the way you speak, the way you spend money, 
the way you relate to others, in what you read, what you watch. Is God forgotten in your thinking? So Peter is telling us the how of holiness. It's based in your identity. Be who you are. Then he says, put off the passions of your former life. And in very Pauline fashion, he tells us to put on. When God tells you to stop doing one thing, there's always something good to put in its place. What does Peter tell us to put on? Holy conduct, verse 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's call is to mirror his glory, model his disdain for sin, the way God is distanced from sin of purer eyes than to look upon sin. Now, these are direct quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, we see in Leviticus 11.44, God tells Israel, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Set yourselves apart. You're not to be like the other nations. You're not to fashion your identity the way you want to. He says, because I am holy. Don't make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. We're to mirror the moral purity of our God who calls us and saves us and delivers us as his own precious possession in all of our being. Uh, Leviticus 19.2, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is seeking to see reflected in the lives of his people something of the glory of his own moral purity. It's interesting how Peter, quoting from Leviticus, and you take into consideration everything else he said in chapter 1, he clearly views the church as the new Israel. See, he says the church like Israel is living as, ex as exiles. The church like Israel is to be girded up for a greater exodus when we are lifted up the earth to meet the Lord at his second coming in the air. The church like Israel is to set their hope on the land of paradise, the land of promise, the new heavens and the new earth. The church like Israel is called to be holy, set apart as God's possession. He always wants what's best for his people. He wants to separate us from what harms us, what mars his image, and he wants that reflected on the earth. I recently ran across a passage in my own devotions from Numbers 15. I think this gets at it in a really good way. Numbers 15, 37. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. See, the commandments reflect God's character. When you obey God's law, you will be holy. You'll reflect back to God the glory of his character. And he says not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Ouch. <laughs> Do you know this inclination in your own heart to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after? To love anything else but God is to be an adulterer at our hearts. To, have, to want anything, to desire anything more than God himself is a whoring after an inferior God. 
And he says in verse 40, so you shall remember and do all my commandments to be holy to the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> I, I can't imagine the more we tell ourselves consciously, God is my God, God is my God, God is my God. He won't, by his spirit, continue to conform us into the image of his own beautiful holiness. Do you see how considering holiness should make us shudder? Considering the holiness of God should make us wonder, how could a person of that glory come near to me? I mean, this is the experience of Israel at Sinai. The whole mountain's quaking. God says, don't touch it. Don't come near it. You'll be consumed by my holiness. Moses at the burning bush. The disciples on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stops the wind and their response is, what kind of man does this? They sense they're in the presence of a person who is utterly different, splendid, majestic in holiness. So the presence of God should produce in us what Isaiah experienced. Woe is me. I am an unclean man. I dwell in the midst of people that are unclean because the holiness of God exposes our iniquity. I'm unclean. Our insanity, although the earth is full of the Lord's glory, I don't live as if that's true. And my inadequate insufficiency to give God what he deserves. All right, our last point we're looking at Holiness, we're describing it as the practice of safeguarding and promoting the health of your soul so that you share in the beauty of God's holiness and thus, thus reflect back to him the glory of his holiness. The last thing Peter shows is <clears throat> beyond how and when is why. And he gives at least two reasons. One, your father holds you accountable. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear, translated holiness, throughout the time of your exile. So this phrase, if you call on him as father, this is an allusion to praying to God, our father who knows our needs, even before we ask them, and a God who is good and is committed to give us all that is good and all that is necessary. Peter couples holiness, he couples that confidence with our conduct. If you call on God as Father, you invoke him as the one who meets your needs, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, this isn't cowering terror, but it's fear that's reverent towards God. We stand in awe of him. We respect him. We honor him. This kind of fear drives my heart to do whatever pleases him, to strive not to disappoint him, and to want to bring honor to the family name. And there will be a future day of evaluating how I did that. He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. I see the word impartial and I think, oh man, there's a part of my heart that says, God's gonna cut me slack. I'm special, please treat me as an exception. No, we'll all be judged by the same standards revealed clearly in his word. God judges according to each one's deeds. One commentator I read said this basically happens in our day-to-day -day lives as God is fatherly uh, disciplining us in the present. I'm not sure I like that interpretation. I think Peter is thinking of the end of time when Jesus appears and we stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. Think of these verses that, that should really strike a, a deep sobriety in our hearts that there'll be an accounting of our lives 
that one day. Hebrews 4.13, no creatures hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You'll give an account of everything you do in your life. 1 Corinthians 3.12, Paul writes it now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day of the Lord will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Wow. Everything I do, including the motives for why I do it, will be absolutely clear before the Lord, and I'll receive my commendation. In the spirit of 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment of doom, and it's not a declaration of doom. It's an assessment of worth. There will be rewards assigned to those who, through faithfulness, deserve them. There will be loss of or withholding of rewards for those who do not deserve them. So I would encourage you to think daily in light of that final judgment and work backwards into the present and end the day by saying this, Lord, did I do today what you've called me to do? Let me give an account of you today for today as I think about tomorrow and next week and this year living in light of the demands of holiness and there'll be a day of accounting when you'll want a record of how I lived for your glory when my life is over in this brief stay of my exile on the earth. Finally, beloved, the, the second reason Peter gives for holiness is your Redeemer has ransomed you. Look how verse 18 begins, knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, newsflash, I'm going to be preaching on verses 20 and 21 on Easter Sunday, so I'm going to set those apart for right now. Just focus on verses 18 and 19. By using the word ransom, Peter is using the language of the slave being delivered or purchased by the payment of a price, gold or silver. Now, what's the principle? The principle is this, you know the value of something by what is paid for it. What's the value of your soul? You are worth immeasurable value because of what it costs to purchase you. Nothing short of the Holy One of God, the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, giving his life for you. Speaking of holiness, Jesus reflects both the glory of God's holiness and the beauty of true humanity in that holiness. And yet staggering, the Holy Son of God, in, unthinkable, in an unthinkable act of self-sacrifice, the Holy Son of God bore in his body the unholy, filthy sins of his people. In the gospel, on the cross, the Holy One became sin to set us free from the condemnation of our sins.
Peter would write in chapter 2, 24, he himself bore in, all, in his body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The holy son of God who never knew an ounce of sin, not for a nanosecond of his life, he never knew sin, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live for righteousness. By his stripes, you are healed. Peter would come back to it in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How can unholy people have any hope of ever being in the presence of a holy God? Through the holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who became all our sin in his body to remove it once and for all, to cleanse us and make us absolutely perfect, forgiven, accepted for the presence of his Father. When Jesus brings you to God, you are safe in the presence of a holy God. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, the holy Jesus, to become sin on our behalf, his death on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. That blessed, beautiful, double imputation, our sin to Jesus, his righteousness to us. Doesn't Peter seem to be saying simply this, you need to nourish your soul with the person and the work of Christ. What is the ultimate key to holiness? Peter returns you to your relationship with Jesus. And isn't that the glorious end of holiness? Knowing Jesus better, enjoying him more fully, and in knowing him, seeing him, and in seeing him, wanting to be like him because of all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the call on our lives to be like you. What could be better? Forgive the insanity of our thinking that we would take this cavalier, that would be in, we would be indifferent to this call, and we would be indifferent to the glorious grace of Jesus purchased through his cross, through his precious blood, that has cleansed us and made us perfect and holy in your sight the Holy One of God becoming sin on our behalf to make us holy. Oh, how beautiful. We have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And out of that grace, why wouldn't we want to be like this Jesus in thought, word, and deed and bring honor and glory to our Father as he sees increasingly perfected in us the beauty of his Son. Do this for your glory by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.